Hello and welcome to Ruby Rogues. I'm John Epperson and I will be your only panelist today because everybody's sick or out or whatever. But today with us we have Peter Flavica. Is that good pronunciation? Yeah, almost. It was good. Hi. Would you tell us how to say it correctly? Yeah, I'm Peter Havichka. It's a Havichka. Okay. Name. Well, I mean, I unfortunately forgot to actually ask you how to pronounce it before we started, but Donker for the correction. Peter, so how do people know you? Like, what makes you famous? Yeah, tell us about your background a bit. Yeah, I started in 2007 as a freelance web developer. Then I moved to PHP and WordPress to Ubay and Rails, which I have enjoyed since 2016. I had the chance to work in a few startups, and since 2020, I'm contractor for UK-based UK startup Avocai Software Engineer. I'm not so sure if I'm famous, but, <laughs> you know. It's all good, it's all good. I mean, I appreciate the, the honesty. So, some of the things that you told us when you were when you were prepping for this is that your background, you have a lot of background in legacy projects. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that, maybe? Yeah. As I said, I have a lot of experience with legacy code base with a bad test suite, even though I'm not focused on it, but most Rails projects I've worked on were basically inherited from the previous development team. So mm-hmm. I saw a lot of extremes there. I can definitely sympathize a bit with you there. Just about every project that I've worked on, save a handful that either I started or a couple of startups that I got involved in have been legacy as well. And it has been a sort of norm that they don't come with good test suites. So in my experience as well. Yeah. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. All right. So, well, before we dive into maybe the article you wrote, I'm just kind of curious. Like, So you get one of these legacy code bases, which happens to people from time to time. What's What are the like first things that you do to get into it? Maybe look for the biggest class there because I'm expecting that's a Death Star class. And I just try to look at it and find what's uh, the main purpose of this class. Not always it's the user class, but mainly from my experience is the user class. And then, of course, controllers, it's the same. I saw a controller that uh, has 2000 lines and model with 1000 lines that's a lot for me i don't know if you have different experience i actually still take care of a code base that has a couple thousand plus line controllers there used to be more but there's still a couple remaining or whatever i have a i don't i mean i i don't know 
I don't know what your perspective is on this, but my perspective in the past has been to, I don't really refactor stuff unless I have like a motivation, right? So we're like making a feature change or something like this, you know, and then I'll make, I'll do a refactor as part of it, you know, something like that. So I don't typically yeah. go out of my way to refactor stuff. Yeah, I have a similar experience because of course, uh, new features need to be added. So during working on them, where I have a chance to do some small refactoring, I do it because it can help me. But uh, I know that doing just like big refactor for some reason, it's not always the best option. So this continuous refactoring worked for me well. Sounds like a similar-ish vein, maybe slight differences, but yeah. All right. Well, some of the, some of the stuff that uh, that it looks like you've done in the past, you've written a few articles, and one of the ones that we picked up was this one titled "Business Logic in Rails with Operators," which we found interesting for various reasons. But I mean, a lot of it has to do with what we were just talking about, which is okay. I have a two thousand line controller, so what of it? Like, why is it like bad or good? Or and you had some interesting opinions on it, so. I mean, maybe let's just start out from a high level. Like, why should I care about my thousand line control? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. From my experience, these kind of controllers with a lot of business logic can uh, make a lot of frustration for developers to work on them. It's uh, very easy to do a small change that will cause a completely different side effect somewhere else. That's mainly not for controls, but for models, active record models. So yeah, having business logic separated from uh, these parts make it much easier to test table, and it's much easier to see what's going on in the in the application. So that's uh, the main reason for me is always to separate things and have a better view of of what's going on in the application. So so. Can you talk maybe from like a high level about what your like techniques that you're using to, for example, separate this business logic out from this controller? Yeah. <laughs> for the article I wrote, I came up with a, like a simple solution for moving the business logic from controllers mainly. But from high level perspective, uh, it's always good to start with check the test suit for it if there is any if not make tests because that's the only thing that can help me to be at least be, be sure to I will not break as much as I don't want to if it just makes any sense yep so yeah starting with tests and then during the writing the test look what's going on in the application in the c- controller and try to separate uh, the main business logic to a uh, separate class, for example, and control okay, so the time our, if the yeah. test seat is always green. So it's like kind of TDD, but red-green refactoring. So when you're separating stuff out from this controller, like, I mean, you you obviously used a technique here in, in your article. You, you call them operator classes. They look, they look kind of a bit to me like service objects. Yeah. Um, if that makes sense. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's, it's, it's basically... Uh, is that a technique you use a lot? I use it, sorry, I, I use this. Uh, I use it in one uh, smaller application. I wrote it uh, about it. And yeah, it worked well. 
it was greenfield application so it was much easier to to do this kind of stuff and of course thanks to the article and thanks to the feedback i received i found out a different solution but from the feedback i can say that most solutions are just service object but in different level of uh, options or possibilities that can be done with them so for example one of the recommendation was interactive gem if you know if you know it yep yeah i'm so, familiar with it yeah and of course i use trailblazer and okay for the avocado application we at the end for refactoring these similar co- controllers we used interactive gem for some reasons that uh, like it was easier for us to have something more complex than just use the simple solution that I wrote about. Makes some sense. So it sounds like you've done service objects maybe a couple times in in a couple different ways. So uh, if I recall correctly, and maybe I do need to look this up, doesn't the Trailblazer gem have like, I think it comes with like a form object thing in it or something? Yeah. Yeah. It's one of its modules. If I remember it correctly, yes. When I had the chance to try Trailblazer in some of the older projects, we encountered a lot of small issues with outloading and, of course, with the, with the Trailblazer that was back then with the version. We also needed to use, like, as you said, form objects and validation differently. So for I believe that for some new project, Trailblazer can be really, really awesome option. But for adding it to already existing project can be more difficult. So that, for example, was the reason why we did not choose it for factoring in Alboca. Oh, okay. I was under the impression you were already using it, but it sounds like you were just uh, considering it. Yeah. And I, as okay. I said, I, All I right. have that makes uh, experience worse. from the older version. I believe that it's on a different level as far as I, as I know from the feedback to the article. Got it. Yeah, it's been it's been a while since I've actually tried to put Trailblazer into a project too. But yeah, awesome. So Peter, are you familiar with like the feedback and kind of discussion that's been going around the community, I think for maybe the past couple of years, there's been a little bit of pushback against service objects in general. And there have been a number of articles written in, in yeah. a couple different directions. Yeah, as far as I know, I uh, read some article about uh, using models for it so instead of calling them service object it's uh, more about using the same folder in app slash models it's something that i would like okay. to try someday but never had the chance to do it but for, as far as i know it's just a different name for service objects because it's always easier to have just like one class for one purpose and if there is more purposes in that class. It can be really difficult to maintain. So that's from my experience. It definitely makes yeah. I uh, I definitely agree that there's like a whole bunch of things out there, right? That have various names that are all called service objects. That is definitely there's definitely yeah. a lot of alternate well, names for it. <laughs> yeah, when I wrote the article, I had like I had to like not vision, but. I knew what I want from it, and I want to make everything easier for me and for my colleagues. So, for example, I want it to be easily understandable even from for juniors. So, when, for example, when I started working with Rails, 
Uh, it was hard for me to decide where I should put the code. I want to have it easy as possible for juniors to not do the decision where they should put it, just use something that is already there and it was made for it. That makes sense. I uh, I think a lot of, I, I mean, when we're trying to like reduce decisions and things, right? I think until you learn sort of like, yeah, I guess that makes, okay. So I'm thinking about like back when I was a junior, right? And I, I'm learning, okay, well, I need to put things in these spots in the controller, right? And I need to put this stuff in the model or whatever. And then as you learn all that stuff, then you encounter people who are like, well, actually, don't put a bunch of stuff in the controller. Don't put a bunch of stuff in the model. And you're just like, so where do I put it, yeah. right? Like, I think that's, yeah, that's where you get at, right? I think because eventually as your app gets larger and larger and you have, thousands of lines of business logic well it's gotta go somewhere yeah for me it's always better to create a place for that code because you can always take the code and refactor it to a different structure or use a different solution and it will be much easier because you already have the code on one place instead of finding them on different places in controllers in models and trying to put them together to understand it and use it hmm. so I think what I'm hearing from you is you're finding that splitting it up between controllers and models is ending up in a situation where you can't find or don't know where your code is. It's more like where the code is, but what's used, what's, what's need to be used as a, for the purpose of the, for example, for creating users or creating invoices and so on. It can be split on different many places and having just one place that you can always reach and put the code there, make it easier even for the future if you will want to change the solution you are using for service objects or for business logic and so on. So even though, for example, my solution can probably be used only on small project, but it still is valuable because uh, you can later refactor it to something else that will more fits project, the size and the needs of the team. I think I understand what you're saying. I think what you're saying is, so there are sort of operations, so to speak, right? Creating a user, maybe initializing that user with certain stuff, like while you're creating it. Or maybe I have, like in your example, you have an invoice, right? So the process, right, of creating or, you know, doing something to that invoice, taking it through some some steps, like those are concepts that are business logic, right? That have rules around them often. And those are things that don't have like a great place to live. Yeah. And yeah, okay. So this is exactly the argument that, for example, like I'm a, in a huge agreement with. I think that the things that we call service objects are, are things to wrap these concepts, these processes, so to speak. And those are good fits for service objects. I, I, I mean, you can probably stuff other things inside service objects, but I think those are the things, yeah, that are yeah, totally good fits, in my opinion. Awesome. So in the end, after you got some feedback and things, um, you tried out the Interactor Gym. I, I presume you, it, it sounded like you were talking positively about it. You liked the, yeah. you liked that result? Yeah, I like that you can reuse interactors, like the actions, because mm-hmm. uh, because of the support of organizer if i'm not mistaken the name so we find out that we have a lot of small steps small actions that are shared between a different business logic action so that help us to 
make it as easier as possible each step each step test it and of course use it when we need to nice yeah i do there's like some error handling and stuff i think the interactor gym gives you yeah uh, the rollback the, uh, method it's of course very useful and the fact that uh, you can easily pass context between the, these actions was also one of the reason we choose chose it to use instead of um, another options that we had back then got it i definitely have a more i have a little bit more i don't i don't know if you would call it a purist stance but <laughs> i definitely try to make it yeah so i feel like processes right to me have always sounded like functional style things mm-hmm. right and and so for me ser- a service object is a is a it's an OOP wrapper, right, around a process, right? So mm-hmm. I am describing it when I write my class, I'm writing an OOP object. But inside that OOP object, like when I run it, I want it to do everything in a functional style. So I have a tendency to not do a lot of like context passing and things like that. But I definitely have been on a couple projects that have used Interactor Gem or whatever. And there's I mean, it's nice to have somebody else write the error handling code for you, uh, for sure. I've I've rolled my own kind of service object based class type of thing, right, a couple times, and there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. So yeah, and of course, it's, um, well, was well tested with someone else. It's it basically for every gem with a good history. And yes, I understand your way of doing it, but uh, in our case, we had a lot of like duplicates like duplicated actions that are used between many actions. I know that it sounds weird, but uh, for example, create by with creating an invoice, there are some steps that are similar when you, for example, want to uh, refund the invoice. So this part of code would be duplicated, but using the way of how interactive gem work we could easily reuse these steps so we have only once there in the code base we it's well tested so we know that uh, it can be easily reused for even other places and, and then the fact that i think that can, makes some sense yeah and of course you can call it just the one action so when needed you don't need to run the organizer to run all the actions that you have for one use case so I'm here with JD from Raygun. JD, when I talk to you, I mean, I really feel the developer vibe, and I know that's your background. But is, mm-hmm. is all of Raygun that way? I mean, you know, it just kind of feels like when I talk to other companies, they're a little more corporate, a little more, you know, focused on maybe, you know, raising money or doing other things, you know. But it seems like when I talk to you, you're just, you know, down-to-earth developer dude. I like to think of myself as a down-to-earth developer dude. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, Ray, Raygun is a little bit different. Um, so... You know, we're not heavily VC-backed. Um, you know, my business partner and I, when we started, we were both nerds, you know. Um, I, I might be the CEO today and I don't write code on the product. Um, but, you know, the joke internally is, you know, what's the definition of technical debt, Chuck? It's CEO code. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> Stuff to go fix. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, we, we, you know, we, we're... Uh, stories. We're, 
<laughs> we're a cash flow positive business. You know, we're not heavily VC funded. Um, you know, but we 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 are at a size now where we're we are expanding, and more and more folks are are discovering what we're about. But yeah, we often look through things through that lens of a developer. You know, I wanted a thirty thousand foot view, but I also want to go right down to an individual um, data point. Um, similarly, you know, I don't believe in averages. I want medians. Mm-hmm. I want P ninety nines. I I make better decisions that way. And so we try and drive that sort of thinking into our products and try and be as developer-minded uh, as we possibly can be. Yeah, I love that because, you know, for me, it's it's run by people who get me um, and you're not under pressure from like a VC to raise your prices or, you know, go hyper-grow and then, oh crap, now we're behind the eight ball with our money and now we've got to figure it out. You know, you're just going to keep growing, steadily moving and, and I just love that. Yeah, I mean, the term these days is often referred to as product-led growth, right? Like, get people to use the product mm-hmm. and say, hey, that's great. I want to give you money. Um, I don't think it's that complicated. Sounds good. Well, folks, if you want to go check it out, you can go find them at raygun.com. Uh, you can actually sign up for a free trial right there on the website. Yeah, it sounds... I mean, one of the things that I noticed in your article was that you... It kind of sounded like you organized around... You kind of created like this... like common interface it was like okay we're gonna have like creating a thing updating a thing those are going to be common things that we're going to have every time and it kind of seemed like you uh, created that sort of like boilerplate type interface for yourself yeah uh, that was like sort of standardized yeah that's, that's so. as i said i wanted to make it as easily as possible so the naming convention is uh, one part of it and yeah i understand that uh, it can be like too simple of course so yeah no it it makes sense so at the end of your experiment yeah how did you feel about your test suite did you feel like it got more complex to test did you feel like it got easier to test for me like to basically testing service object is always easier for me because i don't need to deal with database as much as uh, i would need to if i would have the business logic in uh, for example models but yeah i found it much easier even in tests for me. Awesome. Do you find yourself doing like a lot of mocking and stubbing and doubling? Do you find yourself... Be- because of basically it's a boilerplate, as you said, so the tests can be easily boilerplated too with uh, shared examples in RSpec, for example. So it makes even testing easier if there is some rules that can help to... Like that, they can help with everything from the naming, from tests, and from deciding where it should the code be. Okay, awesome. So, did you did you uh, take this? And it, I mean, was this your most recent project? Did you take it and work take it to other projects? Did it work well in other contexts or not? Maybe. Yeah, as I said, this is based on one usage of it where i tried to find a different approach to service object basically so no i I use it only one project i think that i learned a lot from it and mainly from the feedback and from trying it in a different way and yeah as, as you said it is you know it was an experiment and i i stated in the article that i'm writing this attempt uh, for discussion for feedback and i'm so glad that i receive it awesome yeah i um 
I'm glad the experiment went well. I uh, I definitely, I just kind of had wondered if maybe you had used it in multiple places and stuff, but it sounds like you're kind of working through it and maybe you'll use, I mean, would you, would you use it on another project? Maybe that's a better question to then ask. I think that for a smaller one, even like if I will know from the beginning that the project will be small, for example, so for, for some uh, supporting application, uh, yes, I would use mm-hmm. it because it was uh, easy and I believe it will be for the f- future too, for the maintenance. But of course, for bigger projects, I believe there are better solutions, as we've already m- mentioned, a few of them that can give you more flexibility. And that's something that can be very helpful for larger projects. Okay. I don't know that I personally make a large distinction between whether I would use things for big or small projects in that way. But like, I guess maybe I'm curious, what are you, when you're saying big project, like, what are you kind of thinking? How do you decide that something's like big? Maybe, maybe I'm just not thinking like big enough or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. As I already stated, uh, I have my experience is based on project that I inherited from different developers. So I, of course, see that the project is already big or not. But when I'm creating a new one, and if I know a lot about the scope of the project, then of course I can decide if uh, I will use a simpler way or the more like advanced way, if that makes sense to you. Roughly how many models? I don't know of a good test to decide whether something's a big project or not. <laughs> I, I typically just like open up the models folder and see how many files there are, right? Like that's that's sort of my like rule of thumb. And like 100 models or more is like a big project to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, what are you thinking? Is that fine? <laughs> yeah, for, for example, I use that on an application that is used for helping users to billing to people. Like that it collects data so uh, there is, for example, I believe that maybe 10 or 15 models. So that's for me a very small application. And okay. I understand, of course, 100 and more is even for me a um, big project. That makes a lot of sense. So let's say that you jump on one of these projects that has a less than ideal test suite and uh, you got from somebody else and maybe does or doesn't have service objects who knows maybe has a thousand line controller or something what do you do about that test suite do you do anything with it do you just add new tests when you add stuff do you say okay we're gonna spend two weeks writing as many tests as we can get some coverage or what what do you do what's your strategy there i would say it depends of course but yeah it's mainly creating tests for new new code or like for bug fixing and when there is a time to there is a time to spend it on writing tests for already existing uh, functionality then of course it's as far like for me it's a good to spend this time on it because it's a way how to learn the code base even though it's maybe the hardest way how to do it but uh, it can it can help to understand it and uh, make decisions later if something needs to be refactored or no. And if the test suite is there to help, then that's a big, big help. Okay, awesome. Do you, what do you do? Like when you're not, when you're not working on these legacy code bases, right? These huge legacy code bases, 
Like, do you work on any like side projects? Do you work on any like gems or yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Are you doing anything like that? Yeah, I believe that like every developer, I'm using side projects to learn new things. And when I had the chance to work on it and find out something useful, I'm always trying to write an article about it to share it because I found out that writing about it helps me to get deeper because I want to be sure that what I'm writing is like right or at least it's not misleading anything. So that helps me to go deeper and learn even more when when I'm when I'm writing the article. So yeah, this article was done in a similar way but it was like i did not use my side project but i used something that i i did uh, in work but uh, the rest of articles are based on it and uh, i really can recommend it to share write articles and share everything that everyone has learned learned yeah i mean that makes sense i uh i think one of the things that i have noticed for example about doing ruby rogues for a while right is i actually have to like read up on stuff that i would otherwise like not read about and like there's definitely learning involved right when you're doing things that are tangential to to your job right so like yeah it's not just the code yeah doing the coding does one level but yeah so it's it's sometimes more difficult to learn new things on bigger project because there are more opportunities or more yeah more opportunities to break something so for me, it was always easier to like start on a new project where I can, for example, try new versions of Rails because for some reasons, uh, older uh, code bases are harder to upgrade. So yeah, using side projects for learning is uh, one of the best ways to learn something new for me. And yeah, as you said, it helps me to read more about the topic I want to use. For example, I wrote an article about using multi-factor authentication with security keys and, for example, even with uh, touch ID and face ID. <laughs> yeah, and that, and, and I, I needed to learn about how these, how these things works, how I can, uh, what uh, APIs are used on the browser side and so on. So, yeah, I um the multi-factor is a fun one. I I definitely find that so with legacy code bases, I think the skill that I'm leveling up most of the time is not my not my coding skill so much, but my like judgment skill, like sort of like my ability to like look at something and be like, "Ah, oh, should we do this or should we not?" right? Because there's so many consequences that can or risks that you're trying to to deal with. Whereas when you're working with like a greenfield project, yeah, I mean, I'm just literally leveling up in in my understanding about new rails, a uh, new gem that I picked to like try out, you know, or all these different things, a new pattern that I may be trying. There's just so much, there's a lot more experimentation room that you get in a new project. Definitely true. Sweet. Well, is there anything in your article or on the subject that we've been chatting about that mm-hmm. maybe you you explicitly wanted to talk about that i haven't touched on yet it's okay if there's not you can let me know that yeah, That's yeah, okay yeah. Too. i'm thinking about it uh, I'm, i mentioned reasons um, we discuss usual options that are available for this kind of uh, thing discuss yeah 
I don't have any more part of it because yeah, it's not so big article. But I, I would be interested okay. on on your experience with uh, with service objects and moving business logic to somewhere else. In general, I would say that I have definitely been on teams that have abused service objects, right? Where mm-hmm. literally anything and everything got stuffed into a service object and um, it became sort of a junk drawer. I've also been on teams that were so loath to use service objects that we did have you know, very long controllers even alongside. So I've definitely seen a gamut of things when my personal take on it and the thing that like I'm always trying to push and talk other people into is uh, I think that service objects are great encapsulators for processes. I think that service objects, I think that you probably want to have a special kind of service object if you want to do like form object kind of things. I think form objects actually fit service objects really well, but I think there's a lot of helpers and things that you probably want for your form objects. Like you probably want to have you know some sort of mechanism to handle validations nicely and when you when you're doing form objects you usually have in my experience you usually have like nested things and like multiple models that you're saving at the same time so you probably want to come up with some sort of convention for your app for like do we do we merge all the error messages together, right? And pretend that this is one big object? Or do we have like, do we present, you know, the error messages as separate things? Um, And that can depend on your use case and things like that. So like, there's a lot of choices that you have to make around form objects. So I think you should deal with those separately from a lot of the other kinds. But I do feel like in general, if you can think of a process, right? So if you are, you know, in your, in your, application you were you actually have an invoice as a model and i've been places where invoicing was the name of the process right and so you would have like a receipt maybe uh, like be your model or something right and you would have like you would probably have like an order or something like that or as the the particular case that I'm thinking of, you have like an order and you have like these receipt type things. Um, and the process is called invoicing. And that's when you, you know, move the order to a state of finalization and send, you know, send off, you know, an actual invoice, which is uh, not stored in your database because you're just storing the order and the receipt or whatever. Um, but they're getting a printed out version which I guess is an invoice, right? But you'll never, uh, and so in that particular case, we didn't store that as a model, but the process was called invoicing. So, you know, you could have a process like that. You could have a process of creating a user. Um, Maybe that includes, I I think this is the common example for service objects, which is creating a user and sending them an email or something. And I don't know that that's necessarily complicated enough to rise to the level of justifying service objects in your app. But I think it's a fine example, right? Which is uh, a wrapper around a process of creating and maybe some extra stuff that goes on. I think all of those things fit really well. But if you can define a process, then I think that you can stuff it into a service object pretty well. But yeah, I, I'm a big believer that like, yeah, you should you should make that as functional as possible. Yeah, I try to write only functional style code in there. That's just kind of how I do it or whatever. There's properties on the process itself. Like, for example, if a process is completed or not, right? So the state that a process is in, right? So any state that you have is obviously more OOP related. And that 
that's fine because you have a class that now wraps it, right? So you can have, you can store state on it, right? Like without too much of an issue. But inside each of those methods, right? Like if you write functional style code, I, I find that you can be pretty happy. And functional style code is easy to unit test. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, true. that's how I think about it. I, I missed what you said, sorry. Yeah, just thanks for, for your opinion. I'm agree, of course. Awesome, no problem. Cool, well, uh, thanks for the momentary soapbox. Anything else you wanted to gap about today, maybe, before we happen to fix? Yeah, I don't think I have anything more interesting. Just uh, maybe say that that's something that I like when I came from PHP and WordPress, that Ruby and, of course, Rails allows to have many ways how to do things that uh, even though there is one that is popular that you can always do it differently and that doesn't mean that it's wrong and that's something that i really like in ruby and in rails of course and that's maybe related with uh, that uh, rails is umakase i agree i i do like the fact that ruby and and by extension rails as well allows you to uh i mean it allows you to shoot yourself in the foot if you want. I mean, it basically <laughs> allows you to do whatever you want, right? I, I definitely love that flexibility. I highly value flexibility, I think, when writing code in general. I think that stuff that's flexible gives me the most freedom to change it later, which has been my experience. Like whenever you're dealing with these legacy projects, like what you're working on is something where somebody's going to change their mind on something for some reason. And and that's like, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just, yeah. but that's the nature of the work that you do on these legacy projects. And so being able to have flexible solutions, I think is super valuable. Sweet. Well, I'll go ahead and move us on into picks then if we're good. Before we do though, if people want to reach out to you, talk to you, follow you or anything, how do they, how do they find you? Peter. Yeah, uh, I'm on Twitter. It's uh, Citroniak there. And I have also a blog, and I believe that would be easier to put it in the description. Yep, we'll have that in your show notes. Cool. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. All right. So I'll go ahead and open up with picks. So I've got a couple for this week. The first one that I've got recently. So my five-year-old son has been working on trying not trying to uh, sleep through the night without wetting the bed. That's been a journey. And, and so what we did is we were like, hey, if you can hit 10 nights in a row, you can, we'll, we'll go get this drone for you. You can like, learn. anyway, he was so <laughs> yeah, excited and we just got it. Activation. Yep. We, I mean, we doing a lot of carrots for this particular thing. This is not, this is not something that we feel needs a stick. This is a, 
this is a carrot thing. So anyway, so we uh, we got this drone. It's for beginners, and and it actually has turned out really awesome. I he's been getting better. We've been flying it for like 15, 20 minutes every night. We've got like three or four batteries for it. And, you know, each battery lasts, I don't know, maybe 10-ish minutes of flight time seems about right. So, I mean, it's not a ton, but for a five-year-old, it's pretty good. And uh, he's been he's been learning to fly. So, it's been really great for him. I mean, it's, it's fun for me too, but it's definitely been amazing for him. He just absolutely loves it. So there's that. And then I've also been working on upgrading my my audio stuff. And I have like this problem where I have a mic stand that's like three, four feet away from me. And and it's got a like it's you know, it's got a boom arm and everything. It's it's holding a like a five pound mic on it. And so this thing has always had balance problems. And I was like trying to like figure out what to do. And a friend of mine was like, oh yeah, you can get like these counterweights. And I was like, oh, that's genius. So um, yeah, anyway, I like ordered these these counterweights and things so that I can basically like <laughs> not have my mic stand like leaning on stuff all the time. So super awesome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I still have... I have a longer boom arm coming in now that I have this weight. So I'm very excited that I'll be able to do, have a much better setup than I did previously. So, yeah. I mean, those are my two picks for this week. Yeah, I was just going to as you mentioned your son. Uh, I'm, really looking, I'm really looking forward when my son will in the same age because, yeah, I, that will be more fun every day uh, <laughs> but right now my son is only one years old and he is able to run around every day almost like whole day so yeah because we wanted to have as much as memories on him i bought and i'm just not sure how it's called gimbal if you know what i mean it's uh, something that that can hold your phone when during your recording oh yeah yeah gimbal right it's a is it the name yeah, so yeah, okay. that's helped us a lot to keep keep uh, phone focused on him when he's running around. And yeah, one one thing that I'm really looking forward when he will be older is uh, I'm a big fan of tabletop RPGs like Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to play these kind of games and even even board games uh, with my kids. Uh, yeah, sometime between about four and five, my son went from not really being able to pay attention slash not being interested in board games to being very engaged and very interested and actually pretty competent, just like happened. And we just we did a board game and suddenly he was like doing it. And so somewhere in there it happened. So, yeah, seems like about five roughly seems to be when they can start picking it up. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe a little earlier. Maybe a little later. <laughs> we will see. Everyone's we'll kids see. different. Yeah. But I hope yeah. that you have fun and that matters the most. Good deal. Any any other picks? So a gimbal. Yeah. Uh, for for young kids. Yeah, it's not for them, it's for me <laughs> to be able to easily record them. <laughs> and that one yes. that, uh, that I that I choose uh, is able to like keep focusing on the subject. So you can run around and then just hold the gimbal and it automatically moves around, of course, in limited ways, but it's still helpful. And yeah. Sweet. Awesome. Well, 
thanks for uh, being on today, Peter. Thanks for chatting with us. Thanks for uh, just writing this article and being a part of the community. I mean, shoot. Thanks for all yeah. of it. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely, man. Thanks for coming on. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you again next time. John out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.